Our Father, how grateful we are that we can come to you, into your presence, uh, into your holy holies, and, and we do that because of the blood of Jesus and that Jesus gave us entrance, as the book of Hebrews tells us. The high priest could only go into the holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. One man could go in once a year. But now we can approach you boldly. We can come into your presence because of what Jesus has done. Uh, the veil has been torn because of the sacrifice of Christ who came, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, who appeared to Peter, who appeared to the Twelve, who appeared to over 500 at one time. We thank you that, uh, that Jesus is alive. It is a proof that cannot be refuted. And that he ascended to you, Father, and he's at your right hand, and he lives forever to make intercession for his people. How grateful we are to know you because there was a time in our lives when we did not know you, we did not know Christ. But we heard the gospel, and you pulled us to yourself, and you gave us new hearts. And when you gave us new hearts, and we called on Christ to come into our lives and forgive us of our sins, the uh, Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away, all things have become new. And we needed that because we were dead men. We were walking dead men, and you made us alive. For that, we thank you. And now we're walking through life, and uh, we come from different places uh, across the Metroplex uh, today, tonight. We come from different situations. Some guys today have heard great news, just phenomenal news. Other guys have heard terrible news, uh, didn't even want to come, but they showed up. Whatever the circumstances are that we are walking out of into this room tonight, we pray that your spirit will minister to us and give each guy what he needs. Oftentimes, Lord, we think we know what we need, but in actuality, we don't know what we need. We, we, we confuse ourselves half the time. But you understand our thought from afar. You are our Father. You have our, your, your eye upon us. You, you made us. You constructed us. You formed us. You fashioned us in the womb. You gave us our our gifts, our aptitudes, our strengths, and you also withheld things from us so that we would be dependent on you. You take strong men and you make them weak because we tend to take those gifts and we tend to love the gifts and we tend to depend upon the gifts instead of depending on you. So we usually have to hit a ditch and our lives have to get broken and we fall apart and then when we're on our backs, we look up and call on you. So here we are. Would you minister to us tonight? You promised to do that. We open your Bible. We have no other word from you. We don't count on dreams. We don't count on this or on that. We count on your Bible, which is a sure word. It's the word of Christ. So give us tonight, we would ask, give us teachable hearts. If we've been blind, and we've all been blind, we all have blind spots, open our eyes to blind spots that you want to work on in our lives. Give us teachable hearts. Don't let us be defensive. Let us be open books before you. We all need surgery. Do the surgery. And let us respond and trust you with our lives. You know what's best. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we are kicking off on uh, Philippians, and we're going to call this series uh, through this fall, uh, we're going to call it Contentment in Crisis. Long time ago, I, uh, I read that the Chinese word for crisis, when it is written, is comprised of two characters. The first character uh, represents the word um, opportunity, the second character that makes up the word crisis uh, represents the word danger. 
I thought that was pretty significant. So the Chinese word for crisis is comprised of the word danger and the word opportunity. That, uh, I think that fits the Christian life. First of all, let's say this. If you're a Christian, you're in some kind of crisis. Because uh, to be in some kind of crisis, to be in some kind of adversity, to be in some kind of affliction in the Christian life is not abnormal, it's normal. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. When you're suffering, you're in crisis. Uh, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not a few tribulations, not some, many. You say, you know, Steve, I was here last, sem last semester. I had many tribulations. I'm back tonight. I've still got many tribulations. Well, you're right on schedule. <laughs> and you're right on course. And that's why we're here. Because, and this is why we look into the book. Because, you see, the book reminds us of what is true. The book reminds us of how life really is. Uh, a few weeks ago, someone asked me if I was familiar with a book by Scott Peck called The, the Road Less Traveled. And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And did you enjoy reading it? I said, I didn't read it. Uh, I just read a section of it. I had so many people I knew who read it, I didn't bother to read it. And they told me about the book. I read enough to find out that what he was talking about, not, not a Christian book, but what he was talking about, he was talking about basically baby boomers. And he wrote this, what, 30 years ago? He would have people come into his office, and they would be depressed, and they would be disappointed with life. And uh, basically what he would say to them is this. If you can wrap your arms around this, if you, if you, and baby boomers have had an easy life. I was born not in the Depression. I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 49. My folks were born in the Depression. Uh, my, my grandpa was a pastor in the Depression, trying to feed five kids. And didn't, most of the time, he didn't even get paid in cash. He got paid with, you know, uh, you, you, know, uh, uh, you know, somebody shot a rabbit or something. I, I don't know what they did back then, but it was, it was not times of affluence. He worked among it, it, in certain places, you know, moved around, and things got a little bit better as the Depression passed, but those were tough years trying to feed five kids, and you're, you've heard about that in your family. Some of you guys are around then. Most of us weren't. If you're a baby boomer, uh, you, you lived, for, compared to other folks, a pretty easy life. Um, I did. Our folks came back from World War II. They had a GI Bill. Uh, my dad went to college. No one in his family had ever been to college, but they made it possible for guys to go to college who had served. Uh, they could buy, GIs could buy a house with nothing down because they had served. So there was a building boom and there was prosperity. And not just one car, but suddenly two cars. And think, you know, okay, you, you guys know all this. So if you're a baby boomer, you grew up easy quite frankly. And what Peck would say to these guys, with these people that would come in, he would say, listen, your problem is you expect life to be easy. The problem is expectations. You expect life to be easy, therefore you're disappointed. However, if you'll shift your thinking and expect life to be hard, it'll change your perspective. The Bible tells us that life is hard. The, the, the Christian life is hard. Now, there's... I'm just telling you, it's hard. It's throughout the Bible. The Christian life is a hard life. It's the greatest life, but it's a hard life. Now, there's a life that's harder than the Christian life, and that's the life without Christ. You see? Uh, when we come to know Christ, we put on new lenses. We get new glasses. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Uh, the natural man, the man without Christ, cannot discern the things of God. So when Christ comes into our lives, he not only gives us a new heart and a new mind, old things pass away, all things become new. But now we see things from a completely new perspective. And we realize that this world is not the only world that there is. We live in a secular age. We have a secular political system. We have a secular educational system. Everything in our culture is secular. And we've said it before in here, but I'll say it again because we're just inundated with this stuff. What does it mean to be secular? 
uh, if you're a secular individual, you believe this is the only world that there is. This is not the only world that there is. There is another world. Christ has redeemed us. Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Now, I would say to you today, as you're here, because we're going to do this study on contentment and crisis, as you sit here, are you troubled? And I would say, you, yeah, you are. There are things in our lives that we wish were not there. We would like those things to be removed, but they are there, and they trouble us, and they concern us. Um, we wish that we could be freed from those things. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean you will always have that in your life, but you may. And if that is removed by God in His mercy, I'm just going to tell you the truth. At some point, He's going to replace it with something else. Because we cannot handle unbridled prosperity. We cannot handle unbridled happiness and affluence because it turns our hearts from the Lord. We just can't do it. Because our hearts are desperately sick and wicked, the Bible says. Uh, Robert Murray McChain. I read his Bible calendar. I've done it for years and years and years. He put this together. I've read the biography. He was a pastor in Scotland. He was a legend. He's a legend in Scotland to this day. Uh, died in the 1600s or 1700s at the age of 29. Spiritual giant. You read, you read quotes, and they'll talk about the saintly Mr. McChain. A lady came up to him and said, it's an honor to be in the presence of such a godly man. And he said, my dear lady, if you knew the condition and the wickedness of my heart, you'd spit in my face. There's a straight shooter for you. That's a humble man. I'm not godly, I'm wicked. We're all in process. We're all growing. We're all going from immaturity to maturity. This is the Christian life. How do I get from immaturity to maturity? Through hardship, through crisis, through affliction, through adversity, through suffering. That's what's going on in Philippians. That's what's going on in your life. And so I'm titling this study, Contentment in Crisis. How the heck do you find contentment in crisis? Now, Towards the end of Philippians, Paul's going to talk about the fact that he has learned to be content in all circumstances, in prosperity and in adversity. Let me say this to you. Philippians deals with some of the hardest lessons to learn in the Christian life. Philippians uh, deals with uh, learning contentment. I think one of the hardest lessons in the Christian life and one of the last lessons we we learn. And one of the last things we attain to, if you're growing with Christ, and this takes years and years and years, is to learn how to be content. Because there's always something in your life that you wish wasn't there. You see? So this is a hard lesson. It, it, it is a, well, it's just a hard lesson. The other one is, uh, he talks so much in Philippians about joy. About joy. Learning to be joyful. Uh, that's, there's a difference, and we'll look, get into this, not tonight, but later. Not being happy, happy, because everything's going your way. But being joyful, having a sense of joy. Having a sense of confidence. Having a sense of well-being, even when everything in your life is not going the way that you wish that it was going. You see, now that again is a lesson that's a hard lesson. That's a lesson that takes time. You don't get in a Christian microwave. Don't you wish there were Christian microwaves? I love microwaves. Before we got a microwave, Mary and I were watching some old movie, and we decided to have popcorn. Well, you gotta, you got to pause the movie. Shoot, back then, you couldn't even pause the movie. <laughs> Come to think of it, you couldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, you got to make the popcorn before the movie, Ron. That's right. 
So you couldn't even pause the movie. You young guys don't even believe this, but I'm telling you, that's how it was. You couldn't pause a movie. So if you get up and make popcorn during the movie, you got your eye on it, and you're doing this, and you got the butter in, and you're warming it up, and it, it takes, I mean, it takes 15, 20 minutes. You know, you're trying to hear what's going on in the movie, and your wife's telling you to be quiet, and all that stuff. It was really, it, it was not good. Life was hard. Those were hard days. Those were hard days in the 60s. We didn't get indoor plumbing at our house till the 90s. I, I just, now I'm, now I'm fooling around. But, but then we got a microwave. Shoot, you throw that sucker in, you hit a button three and a half minutes, boom. You got it. You see? Don't you wish there was a great big Christian microwave? You know, yeah. You know how those microwaves have little buttons and they'll have recipes like baked potato, you know, how much time, you know, casserole, how much, what is it? Joy. Four minutes. So you hit joy, you get in the microwave, hey, praise God. Or, you know, contentment. You know, five minutes. You get in there, hey, praise God. Patience with children, three hours. That still takes time, doesn't it? There are no uh, microwaves in the Christian life. There are crockpots in the Christian life. Crockpots are, we were given a crockpot as a wedding gift. Uh, it sat on our counter. I've never used that crockpot. It's, it, it's not on the counter anymore, but for years it was on the counter. I ne I've never used that sucker once. And you know why? It says it on the front. It admits it. It says, it even reads slow. <laughs> Slow cooker. I'm not touching that thing with a 10-foot pole. Now, you can cook a chicken in a microwave. You sure can. You can also cook a chicken in a crock pot. They'll both get done. I have a question for you. Is there a difference between the two? And the difference, sure, it's obvious. In fact, that chicken that has cooked for hours instead of minutes, well, there's no comparison. Uh, here's, not only is the taste better, but here's the other thing. When you pull it out, that chicken out of that crock pot after hours, it's all you can do to hold it together because it's so tender. Now, this is why God puts his men in crockpots because we tend to get hard and we, we tend to have our own wills and we have our own plans that we love, that we love and that we want and we have our goals and we have our objectives and this is what I want my life to look like and this is the schedule that I want these things to be realized. These are the dates. Uh, we don't give those up easy. So, <laughs> he's gonna put you in some kind of crockpot of crisis. It might be your health, it might be your work. Maybe you have been, I got an email this week from a guy who was in one of the churches I pastored in California 35 years ago. Hey, Steve, I'm 63. Just, let go, just got let go. I got to keep working. Would you pray for me? Sure. He's in crisis. Still got a mortgage, still got bills. You know, couldn't put enough away for retirement. Didn't want to retire. He's got good health. He didn't want to sit around all day smelling roses. He wants to do something. What does he need? He needs a job. He's in crisis. He's back in the crockpot. Good guy. Loves the Lord. He has my highest admiration. He's back in the crockpot. 
You say, that's not my crockpot. What's yours? Oh, it's my marriage. Okay, that's your, that's your crockpot. Or, you know, I've got people that um, are, are, are just absolutely missing with my reputation. Somebody's got a vendetta against me. This happens. It happened to Jesus. It'll probably happen to you at some point in your life. They're talking about you behind your back, and there's not a, there's not a thing you can do about it except keep moving on and following Christ because Jesus knows Jesus, yeah, but, that, but, but I, I may not advance. I may not promote. No, promotion comes not from the east or from the west or from the desert, but from God. God's the one who promotes, not people. God promotes. Yeah, but they're over me. Yeah, well, he runs those people over you. He runs them. And if he wants you promoted, you will be promoted. Well, I don't know how that'll work. Well, you don't need to know how it works. You just need to know the living God. Okay. All kinds of different crockpots of crisis, financial, health, marriage, uh, a wayward kid, a kid that you raised to know Christ. I, I run into guys often now who have sons that are away from the Lord, uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you, that are, they're either living lives of sexual promiscuity at college, or they're single, they're away from the Lord, they're out of college, or they're into the homosexual lifestyle. And it just, it just rips their guts out. I remember a few years ago in a weekend, I had a guy come up to me at a conference and he was just brokenhearted because his son, who he'd raised to know the Lord and all this, taken off somewhere and was living that lifestyle. Uh, within a few days, I had another guy come up to me who had the same story, but he said, this is, Steve, I got to share this with you. My son called me and he's coming home. And he said, Dad, I'm done with this. And the Lord did a work. You see? Now, those are, most of us are not in that crockpot. Well, we have some guys here, and that's your crockpot of Christ. I don't know. It's a thousand different things, but there's crisis. We're in crisis in this country. Big time. We're in all kinds of crisis. I mean, everywhere you look, there's crisis. It's, it's, it's just upside down. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's just... It, you can't even fathom it. What has happened? Well, Romans 1 has happened. We haven't been, as I said a couple weeks ago, we haven't been taken over. We've been given over. But God has a plan. But you've got to step back. I don't know how many guys I've talked with this week about, what do you think about this Iran thing? You mean the treaty? What do you think about that? It's crazy. It's insane. And it absolutely fits Scripture. You've got to take a step back from this stuff. This is nuts. Yeah, 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 absolutely it's nuts. But see what you've got to do when you hear about it. Instead of getting all, you know, acid refluxed over it, or whatever happens to you, you've got to take a step back and say, gosh, you know what? This fits, uh, this fits Ezekiel 38 and 39, which it does. God's got a plan for the ages. God's running the show. He's just setting it up. He is just setting it up. And it's absolutely nonsensical. You say, we're in crisis. Sure, we're in crisis. Hadn't planned on doing this, but let me show you one of my all-time favorite verses. Job chapter 12. Because a lot of guys right now, and let's just be honest, we're concerned about what's going on around us. Because it seems like uh, the nation is falling apart, and that's because the nation is falling apart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, don't forget that it's God who raises up nations, and he sets them down. Now, whenever God judges nations, and if you were here when I stepped in for Chuck and Penchant for a couple weeks, I talked about Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was about judgment on Judah, and, and then towards the end of Jeremiah, He's talking about judgment on, on different nations. Romans 1 talks about uh, the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what nation or what individual. Uh, judgment will occur a after God's infinite mercy. Anyway, I can't go there. But what I want to show you is Job. And uh, I'm showing you this because I want to... I, 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 we're going to talk about our personal crisis tonight that God brings into our lives. That may shock you. 
But I want to be real clear about that. Whatever crisis you've got, God has brought it into your life. And I'll show that to you in a little bit. But for, for a moment here, I want to talk about the world crisis. You should not allow this to keep you up. You should sleep like a baby. Uh, if you really understand what's going on. So let me show you Job. I'm trying to get to Job. Uh, let me show you Job 12. This, this really helps. Um, we've gone over this before in here. Let, let's, just, let's, uh, let, let's just land here on... Uh, Verse 10, and who, uh, let's do 9. Who among all these things, who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this and whose hand is the life of every living thing? Uh, he's talking about the adversity Job is that's come into his life. Great adversity. Uh, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? All mankind is utterly dependent on God. Go down to verse 16. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. So if you watch too much news, you'll get upset because you see leaders misleading and you see people being misled. Just know this, they both belong to God. God's not upset. Why should you be upset? You just got to get a right perspective. Go over to 20. He deprives the trusted, uh, 1220. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. Who are those? Leaders are trusted ones. Somehow they've earned the trust in a democracy to get votes. But if they don't have the character to match up, they lose trust. Okay. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. All right, this is sounding familiar. Look at 23 of 12. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. That's the Iran Treaty. Don't you think? How could anybody with intelligence? I don't know who's negotiating that treaty, but I'd like to buy a house from them. <laughs> now, am I getting political here? No, I'm, actually, I'm biblical. That's insane. That is absolute insanity, but if you tie this with Romans 1... If you want to deny that God is there and deny and deny and deny, he'll give you over to a reprobate, unthinking, illogical, insane mind that doesn't reason. Okay. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth people. Watch this. And makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now tell me, who makes them do this? God does. So why don't you get some sleep tonight? Because God is setting up his plan for the ages. He's got a plan. Some of you go, oh, I love going to prophecy. We don't have a lot of prophecy conferences anymore. They used to be real big. But you study prophecy, and oh, you've got the chart, and you've got all this, and you know. And, 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 and. Yeah, it's great. It's wild to study. Amazing. Well, guess what? We're watching it come together. We're going to annihilate Israel. No, you're not. No, you're not. Read, read 38 and 39. So Russia and Persia, which is Iran, could come together and send in nukes on Israel, and God's going to defend them supernaturally because God has a plan for the church and God has a plan for Israel. And Jesus is coming back, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and the government shall be on his shoulders. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Now, in the interim, there's going to be crisis. But Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In fact, I've got the whole thing from beginning to end. I run this show. And I got my eye on you, and I got my eye on your kids. And we've got all kinds of crises. But in the midst, we can have peace. That's Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall, watch this, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see? <laughs> because he's got you. He's got your back. He's got your life. My times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. 
You see? This is the greatest stuff in all the world. Is it not? Contentment in crisis. I have learned, Philippians 4, to be content. We are learning to be content with the changing scenery that's going on in the nation and in the world. We're learning. Doesn't mean we'll have it at 1.30 in the afternoon tomorrow. You may have it right now, but it goes away real fast. And then you've got to get back in the book and you get your head thinking. You've got you to start thinking biblically again, right? It's just how it is. Okay. So crisis. Crisis represents danger and opportunity. Uh, man, I think that's absolutely on target. Um, l- let, me, let me make a statement to you. And here's the statement. God uses crisis. Whatever your crisis is, God uses it. All right? I'm going to just hammer that. God uses crisis. So what's your crisis? I had a friend tell me this week. They just audited audited his ministry. Ah, now they're going after him. Oh, that's fun. That's called crisis. Who wants to deal with that? Nobody. Okay. Okay. But don't ever forget, in the midst of that, God uses crisis. Let me give you a second principle. God particularly uses crisis in the lives of those who are teachable. I want to say this, because God is sovereign. God uses crisis in the lives of every individual in the whole world. But God has a special, special covenant love for his people. Uh, And for them, God uses, God especially uses crisis in the lives of those who are teachable. Now, if you're a Christian and you're not teachable, he's going to rough you up. He's going to discipline you. He's going to Hebrews 12 you. He's going to take you to the woodshed because... He can't let you get obstinate. Um, have you noticed I haven't gotten to Philippians yet? <laughs> this truly tonight is just an introduction to the concept. I really mean that. Uh, he will discipline you. If you've never been disciplined by God, you're probably not a child of God because every son that he receives, he disciplines. And to those who have been trained by it, It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see? If if you're a good dad, you'll love your kids, and you'll discipline your kids appropriately. Uh, If you're an immature dad, you'll just give to your kids, or you'll neglect your kids. Either give them too much, or you don't give them, you don't pay attention to them. Guys can go either way. But a a father who is growing in Christ loves his kids, disciplines his kids, legitimately loves them, it's over, it's done, because you're not trying to, you're not abusing, you're not doing anything, you're training, you're training, you're teaching, you're modeling, that's fathering, okay? Now, if we do this uh, as fathers, Christian men attempt to do that with our kids, we have a perfect heavenly father who has never made a mistake with any of his kids, Okay? So here's the deal. You don't want to be obstinate. You don't want to fight him. You want to have a submissive spirit. You want to get under the blood. You want to get under the mercy. You want to get under the authority and bow. And you bow low. Okay. God uses crisis. Now, give me a minute. I'm processing. Um, There are a group of uh, pastors that 
have taken a bad rap. They're called uh, the Puritans. If you want to mock somebody, you call them Puritan. Uh, you're just Puritanical. Uh, the reason the Puritan pastors of the 16, kind of late 1500s, 1600s, maybe into the 1700s, somewhere in that period, uh, J.I. Packer called those men, he called them God's giant sequoia trees in his forest. They were the spiritual giants. Uh, they lived in times where the church was persecuted. Uh, under the reign, a Bloody Mary uh, was was you know, lopping off heads, burning them at the stake. You can walk in downtown Oxford in front of bed and bath. That was fun to see in Oxford. You know, you can run in there and get sheets if you need them. But right out in front, you got a monument in the street that's just a little thing about like that where, uh, was it Cranmer and, uh, I can't forget the other guy, were burned at the stake. Latimer and Cranmer. Wasn't it, oh, was it Ridley? That's good, Rich. Latimer and Ridley, and, and Latimer said to Ridley, play the man, Ridley, we shall burn a candle that all of England shall see today. <laughs> they were dropping like flies because they were trying to stamp out. See, they called them Puritans because there was a state church that was in all this bureaucracy, and these guys wanted to keep the church pure according to the Bible. So they had, went under persecution. And so because they had so much persecution and they suffered, they went real deep into the Word, and they were real mature. And what they have written, I read their stuff. I read John Flavel's stuff. I've worn out four copies, maybe five copies of The Mystery of Providence. All Things for Good by Thomas Watson. I've worn out four or five because I just keep reading them because it's prime rib and baked potato stuff. You see? These guys knew God because they suffered. Uh, I find it interesting, their stuff almost went out of print in the 1950s, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was in a used bookstore in London and came across a book he'd never seen before by a man he'd never heard of before uh, named Thomas Watson, and he read it, and he had just met a man who had made a significant amount of money, the one to do something significant, and they got together and decided, let's publish some of these old masterpieces. And now they're, they're just, they're everywhere. And I see young pastors reading these books. You know what I think is so interesting about this? Uh, we're moving into a period of crisis like they were in. And these are the men who are going to teach. Uh, this, this guy, uh, I.D.E. Thomas is his name, uh, put together some quotes from some of the great Puritan pastors. And I want to just read some of these to you because... There's a perspective here that you don't get in the modern-day evangelical church normally. Uh, we're talking about contentment in crisis. Uh, when you're in crisis, uh, it's because there's some kind of affliction, there's some kind of adversity, okay? Let me give you some quotes. Uh, Robert Layton said, Adversity is the diamond dust heaven polishes its jewels with. Did you get that? Okay, here's one that's not in here, but it just comes to my mind. Thomas Watson said, God prospers by impoverishing. What do you think of that? You could, talk, you could start a TV show with that. You could start a Christian network with that. God, uh, God, God prospers by impoverishing. No, we just want prosperity. Well, how, does, how do you prosper? By being impoverished. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1. Job 2. Shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? Huh. See, if, you've, if God's taken away something, you're, you're in crisis and you're in adversity and you're in affliction. Thomas Watson said, Affliction may be lasting, but it is not everlasting. Why? Because this is not the only world that there is. We're not secular people. We're Christian people. There's another world. I've been reading Os Guinness's book, um, Renaissance. And, and uh, Os Guinness, whose parents were missionaries in China, he lived through the famine in China and the persecution. He had two brothers die of starvation in China. He survived. 
later got back to England. He's, he's from the Guinness Brewery family, and that family, they have three strains. They have the brewery family, the bankers, and the missionaries. And uh, anyway, Guinness knows about suffering. He's seen it. He saw two brothers die on the mission field. But Guinness, in his book, talks about there have been five different periods since the New Testament where it looks like Christianity was going to be completely and totally stamped out. And then there's a renaissance, there's a rebirth, there's a resurrection. You see? You never know what God's going to do. But whatever the suffering, affliction may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. And he has a chapter in that book that basically say, says, I love the title of this. The chapter of the book, Our Golden Age is Ahead. And see, so many of us are worried because we think our golden age is behind us. Don't we? Our golden age is ahead. Here's another one from Watson. Whoever brings in affliction, it is God that sends it. What do you think of that? Whoever brings an affliction, it is God who sends it. Is that biblical? All right, let's talk about Job. Uh, was Job in the crock pot? Big time. Did Job suffer? Did he have adversity? Did he, have he, he had everything. Uh, unbelievable what happened to that guy. Yeah, and you say, that's exactly right. That's, that's, that, that's right. Satan brought it. How did Satan bring it? He had asked permission from the Father. And the Father said, you can do this, but you can't go any further. You see. Because God has a purpose. Let me show you Psalm 119, verse 91. I'm going to show you a couple of verses, and I'm actually going to look at Philippians. <laughs> but this is a setup tonight, Okay. You got uh, set in volleyball, you got set, and you got spike. Tonight's set. We're doing this tonight. We're doing, we're doing, we're doing that. And then next week we'll get into Philippians and we'll start spiking over the net, okay? Uh, Psalm 119, verse, I think it's, I think it's 91 which says in the New American Standard Bible, come on, where's 91 here? Give me a break. Hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm about to be embarrassed here because that's not the verse I'm looking for. Hold on a second. I'll tell you it's on the right hand of the page. It's the verse that says this, and I'm sorry, I cannot pull it out. I, I'm just, I don't know what to say to you. Psalm 119 says this, all things are thy servants. Is it 91? Is it 119.91? Well, hold on a second. Oh, there it is. It's in 91. All right. All, watch it. All things are thy servants. All things. That'd be prosperity. That'd be adversity. Tie that with Ecclesiastes 7. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. So crisis is his servant. Poverty is his servant. Sickness is his servant. All things are thy servant. Nations are his servant. Political leaders. Uh... Anything, uh, the law of gravity is his servant. All things are thy, earthworms are his servant. All things are his servant because he is absolutely sovereign over life. Therefore, he is sovereign over your crisis. Now, let's go to Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in crisis. Now, what's interesting is that Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, and the deacons 
uh, the church at Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It, uh, the, the town was uh, really founded and named after uh, the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedonia. Uh, and uh, there's some history to it. And then, you know, it, it, it became a Roman colony. And it was not really a, an area of commerce, but uh, it, it had, as a military Roman colony, it, if you lived in Philippi, although it was 800 miles from Rome, it was the same as living in Rome. There were special privileges living in Philippi. You didn't have the taxes that other people in the Roman Empire had. You, you had, there were tremendous privileges. You were treated as though it was an outpost of Rome. It was like an embassy somewhere else. Okay. Um, Paul is writing to them. And we'll get into this next week. Paul is writing to them, probably from Rome, catch this, where Paul is in jail. He was in jail for two years, didn't know if he would live or die. That's what you call crisis. We're not used to seeing Christian people being put in jail in this country. But we ought to start getting used to it. So Philippians should apply to us. Okay? Notice, notice, uh, Verse 7, for it is only right, uh, 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. He's in prison. Doesn't know he's going to live or die. That's crisis. You know what's interesting? They, they sent him a, a financial gift. He really didn't ask for it. They just did it, and they'd done it before. He is writing to thank them. And you know what else? He's writing. This is, this is great. The guy's sitting in jail, doesn't know if he's going to live or die, and he writes this to encourage them. Uh, th this is a book about crisis. It's about living the Christian life in crisis. Now, I want to do this quickly. It's fascinating that Paul, it says, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Paul is a bondservant of Christ Jesus, but Paul was not always a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I want to give you, just time-wise, at this point, I'm going to give you three principles, and I'm going to fly on this. Number one, uh, Paul created crisis. His name used to be Saul. But he created crisis. If you flip over to Acts, to the left, uh, what you have, the first martyr was Stephen. And if you look at Acts 7, 58, he makes his defense against the Jewish council and he indicts them. They were cut to the quick in verse 54. Um, he looked up in the heavens, he saw the glory of God, he saw Jesus. Uh, they drove him out of the city in 58. They began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the apostle Paul, before he met Christ. Uh, so he held the coats of those who murdered Saul, uh, uh, Stephen. Look at chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Uh, here was the deal. The gospel was going to be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, and amazing things were happening in Jerusalem. I mean, amazing things. People were coming to Christ by droves. But you know what? They weren't supposed to stay in Jerusalem. They were supposed to go into all the world, but they didn't want to go because they were so comfortable. So you know what God did? He sent crisis. He sent persecution. And suddenly they're going to Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the world because they're trying to get away from the crisis and the gospel is spreading. See, in your life, God will work sovereignly and God will work strangely and God will work slowly. But he works. Persecution is a servant of God. 
Crisis is a servant of God. So here is Saul, who's breathing murderous threats, and he's ravaging the church. In verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. That's what you call crisis. Okay? Uh, chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now Saul's in crisis. Get up, enter the city, it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. That's crisis. So Paul created crisis. Now, here's number two. Paul is converted out of crisis. Because, you see, crisis is God's servant. By the way, let me just stop here for a minute. Now, what's your crisis right now? Whatever crisis you're in, it's a servant of God. By the way, whatever crisis you have that brings affliction and adversity, God intends it for your good. And we know, this is Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes most things. Oh, is that right? Does it say that in the text? I was wrong about verse 91 because of the medication I'm on. Does it say God causes all things? To work together for good? How can that be? No, I, I think it says God causes most things. No, it says he causes what? All things. That means everything you're dealing with in your life that you don't want right now, whatever it is. God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good that happens to us because they're not. Bankruptcy is not good. Murder is not good. Divorce isn't good. Cancer is not good. Okay. But God causes all things, watch this, to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God has good intended for you through whatever your crisis is. That's why you need to hold on to the faithfulness of God and not bolt. Just hold on and submit and say, Jesus, help me. And, you, and, and don't say, you say, I don't know how long I can do this. You don't think about how long. Just asking for grace for today. And then go to bed tonight and you'll get up and there's brand new mercy on your table. It's Lamentations 3. Okay? This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. So a day at a time. That's it. Paul was converted through crisis. Now, and, and then, I love this. And I got 20 seconds, but who cares? <laughs> so he's blind, and, and so look at this. Uh, so this guy named Ananias, verse 10. This, we got to read this. Now, there's a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. I'm really in do. What do you want me to do, Lord? I'm all yours. Whatever you want me, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Okay. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and acquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Say what? And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so they might regain his sight. I love this. So Ananias answered and said, uh, Lord, uh, uh, 
uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He knew all about this guy. He knew he was coming. They were all in crisis. Watch this. The Lord said to him, go, watch this. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Watch this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Because I'm going to mature this man. And he is going to be the most influential of all the apostles and write more New Testament epistles than any other man. I'm going to use this man. Because I'm going to use him, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to be in crisis. Which takes us to number three. Paul was matured in crisis, and that takes me right to Philippians, and he's in prison. Paul was always in prison. He was either coming out of prison or going into prison, or they were stoning him or beating him up, or he was in a shipwreck. He was always in some kind of what? Crisis. But God was at work, and God was maturing, and God had a plan, and it was all designed for his good and for his maturity. When God allows crisis and God plans crisis and brings it into our lives, it's for our good and it's for his glory, and he's working his plan. He's working his plan throughout the whole world. And the more, guys, the more we can get a grip on this truth, can I say this to you? The more content I can be with the things that are in my life that I wish weren't there because I understand that God's behind them, that God controls them, that he oversees and has already determined the outcome, and that he will make a way, and he will provide, and he will deliver, and he's my sovereign keeper and my sovereign defender, and my life is not in the hands of men. My life is in the hands of God. And you say, Steve, I might, I might get killed. You might get killed. Paul might get killed. But Paul went on and said, right after what we read in Philippians, To die is gain. To die is gain. I would like to just go on and be with the Lord, but I think he's going to have me remain because he has work for me to do. So guys, let's not be weary in well-doing. Let's stay at our post. Let's stay faithful. Let's keep short accounts when we sin, confess immediately, and let's walk with Christ. He'll use you. And by the way, if you want to be used, there's only one way to be used. You've got to suffer. If you've never used, if you've never suffered, you can never be used. Ever. I was a young guy in my 30s. I had one degree from a seminary. I was going after another because I thought those theological degrees would equip me for ministry. You know what I found out? Theological degrees don't equip you for ministry. Suffering equips you for ministry. Amen. Suffering. If you've never suffered, you haven't received the grace which you can pass on to others. But I'm out of time. So let's pray. So, Father, are we in crisis? Yeah, we are. Are you in control of our crisis? Yeah. Some of these crises you will lift from us at the appropriate time. We've seen you do that in the past. Some of these perhaps will be with us until we take our last breath. So be it. Our lives are in your hands. We have personal crises, crises in the family, health, whatever. We've been over this. There's world crises. How grateful we are that you are the sovereign God. And not only are you sovereign, but you are good. You are good. We can trust you with our lives. We can trust you with our futures. We can trust you with the pain that's in our hearts. You understand our thought from afar. Here's, here's my prayer as we walk out of here tonight. Help us to go home tonight 
and sleep. There are guys in here that haven't really slept well in weeks. Help us not only to sleep, help us to rest because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. We ask these things in Jesus' name.